0: CAST, the official podcast of ACRM and the Archives of Physical
1: Medicine and Rehabilitation, is sponsored in part by Shepherd Center. My name is Zach Bradley. I'm a current employee and former patient of Shepherd Center, which specializes in medical treatment, research, and rehabilitation for people with a spinal cord injury, brain injury, stroke, multiple sclerosis, spine and chronic pain, and other neuromuscular conditions. Our specialized clinicians serve as complex care partners,
2: they collaborate with medical professionals who refer their patients to Shepherd Center to help them
1: achieve optimal outcomes, returning them to their homes, communities, schools, and workplaces. The research is coming back to Chicago.
0: Join us for ACRM 2022, our 99th annual conference. This meeting will be in person and online. Save the dates, October 6th through 11th. Call for proposals and registration coming soon. Go to acrm.org slash 2022.
1: You're tuned in to the 39th episode of Rehab Cast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox of the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. We're hearing about a new kid on the block for lymphedema management the Limpa Touch Negative Pressure Massage Device, is investigated by Dr. Jeanette Lee of the San Francisco State University. And then we're gonna check in with Justin Chi, who's a grad student in rehab sciences and biomedical engineering at the University of Toronto. Justin's been sorting through all the MS gait parameters you can shake a stick at, and sits down with us to tell us what's most important in predicting disability and falls. Joining us now on the Rehab Cast, we have Dr. Jeanette Lee. Dr. Lee is Associate Professor and Chair of the San Francisco State University Doctor of Physical Therapy Program. It's a joint program shared with the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, she and her colleagues have published on a treatment of breast cancer related lymphedema with a negative pressure device, a pilot randomized control study. Um, Dr. Lee, thank you for joining us today on the Rehab Cast.
2: Good morning, Dr. Vox. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, I, I really appreciate your being here, and you have uh, quite a lot of uh, professional expertise in this particular uh, condition. It's always interesting to see novel uh, research questions, or at least the first randomized controlled trial uh, of something that that's relatively. Uh, new. Uh, this device has not come across my radar before, but I gather from uh, you know your uh, industry in particular, of lymphedema management area of expertise, it's something you guys have been seeing out there for a while with uh, kind of smaller, kind of company-funded type trials and so forth. And uh, you're looking, you're looking at a particular. Uh, type of negative pressure device, uh, the LymphaTouch. Uh, I gather there may be some some others along this line as well.
2: There is, and There, there is, and there's been some devices that are quite similar, uh, but I believe like LymphaTouch is probably the more well-known of all of the devices out there. Um, for the past few years now, quite a few clinicians have Talked about their experiences anecdotally with the use of this with the use of this device, um, primarily in breast cancer-related lymphedema, but certainly in other um, swelling disorders. I guess is ca- how we might categorize kind of like the big bucket of um, mm-hmm. of edematous conditions.
1: Yes, and in fact, the kind of uh, gold standard treatment that you're doing there. Um, with regards to the complete decongestive therapy, is something you know we've been certainly been doing in our uh, stroke uh, population, hemiplegia, uh, kind of uh, related uh, uh, dependent extremity edema, both uh, arms and legs. Have found a good amount of efficacy there as well. Uh, certainly, uh, I, I I wonder if uh, this this uh, type of treatment may be something we'll be exploring in that indication as well. Now it's somewhat. Counterintuitive, I suppose, given that the kind of current standard is to apply positive pressure. I I suppose yeah. to, a, to a swollen extremity, and this is negative pressure, uh, which would sounds on the surface like it might. Mm-hmm. Make it worse. Um, well, just describe the the device uh, to us and, and kind of what this looks like for our listeners.
2: I I think that was actually your. You make a good comment about the positive pressure versus negative pressure, and positive pressure in terms of kind of the more traditional manual lymphatic drainage strokes, where the strokes are typically pretty light to the touch, and the thinking there is like you don't want to exert too much pressure in, in so that you don't compress the lymphatic vessels. Whereas this negative pressure device functions in the opposite way, there's um, there's there's a suction cup basically that attaches to the machine and the, you can program the machine to exert a certain amount of um, pressure. And I believe like for this particular model that we were using, it was anywhere from 80 to 250 millimeters of mercury. And so when you apply the suction cup to the skin, then it sort of has this like, um, I guess like for lack of a better word, like it kind of like pulls the skin apart and sort of like encourages the lymphatic vessels to widen a little bit, I guess, in a way. And then that um, theoretically should encourage lymph flow. The other thing that it does is sort of like is able to move kind of like the fascia between the between your tissues, basically. And so that that theoretically should also improve the lymph flow. Um, So with this particular device, the suction cups come in, like, many different sizes. So the understanding that, like, you can use a smaller suction cup in the neck or kind of the smaller areas around the breast, and you can use, like, a larger suction cup um, with, like, the large, like, the upper arm, for instance, or kind of like the side, the 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 trunk, for instance.
1: Uh, are there any particular contraindications for fragility of skin and and uh, wounds? I would imagine.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think um, sort of the general contraindications for the performing of um, manual lymphatic drainage, I believe, like would apply to the negative pressure device as well. There's the skin fragility. Um, there's also whether you know, like, there's just some people who can't tolerate. Mm-hmm. You can adjust you can definitely like toggle the pressure um but you know like you might have some patients that are not able to tolerate even the the least amount of pressure um from the negative pressure device. Okay. There's also sort of the issue of um skin sensitivity too um but that would be true for patients who do manual lymphatic drainage or negative pressure device I see. um in general too, just kind of within the m l d within the lymphedema world um you know, like if you have like an active fever mm. or like an infection, then these conditions would be contraindications for both.
1: Now, even the, the, the fact that uh, these treatment sessions, this device applying negative pressure, roving over the entire extremity with a suction cup device, I gather, is it is it lubed up in some way so that you're rolling over? No, everything?
2: so you'll, you'll probably find some variation between okay. lymphedema therapists. But in general, like the clinicians I work with, and definitely at least for this study too... Um, We had three clinicians um, that did the treatment sessions and all of us have lymphedema certifications um, and were, I believe like all of us have at least 10 years of experience with this population, Um, but we chose to not use a, a, like a, like a lubricating Mm -hmm. substance. So we just kind of like, you know, the skin was clean, um, but we didn't use like a moisturizer or like massage cream or anything like that.
1: Okay, so it's not something that's on uh, constantly, and that you're moving. You're putting it in each spot uh, where so, the
2: so so yeah. you're kind of moving it in a way okay. that, like, um, how should I so like the, once the suction cup is on, so yeah, it's on the skin, right? You can like pull it up a little bit to kind of like oh, okay. increase, like pull it pull it up a little bit without completely removing the suction cup. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? And then you can sure. sort of like move it along the skin in that way.
1: I'll move it along a little bit. Okay. Very good. Um, and after each of these sessions, uh, it's still coupled with patients going back in their lymphedema garment to provide mm-hmm. against positive yeah. pressure. Yeah. yeah. So it opened up the channels and now hopefully things are going to be pushed out. Yeah. Like and
2: part of the reason why we did that too was, um, was to sort of impose some measure of sameness between the two mm-hmm.
1: groups, so to speak. Yeah. And so, uh, as per the the title, this is a, a randomized trial comparing the uh, kind of current standard of of treatment, the manual lymphatic drainage to this uh, new technique. And um, uh, in the in the course of that, uh, it's uh, uh, you know, besides the individual uh, treatment, each person is going back into their dressing and so forth. Now, uh, tell us about the general types of patients that you're that you're talking about. These aren't. Uh, folks who have recently developed uh, lymphedema, it's somewhat more chronic, Uh, a year out, sometimes even over five years out? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I think the average for the study um, was definitely more than a year out, although uh, at least a year out was our kind of like baseline baseline requirement, eligibility criteria. So definitely
1: no question about this spontaneously having gone away on its own. Uh, There's
2: also the question of, I think like one of the things we were interested in Um, with this study was looking at the more chronic cases of lymphedema versus like acute, the the more acute case of lymphedema. And that's the reason why we decided on a time frame of that more than one year out.
1: Comparing these folks, obviously there are the the standard uh, measurements of lymphedema that that you're tracking. There's this uh, DASH uh, Mm -hmm. questionnaire as well about function. I understand there wasn't too much change with regards to function are people's uh, reports of the function of their extremities. Although in your population, it was, they were fairly minimally impaired, right?
2: Yeah. One one of the things too, that we were kind of surmising is like when you have lymphedema for that prolonged period of time, like many people sort of find ways around it. Because oh, okay. It's kind of like when we work with patients that have had a chronic condition that may limit function, such as a stroke or, mm-hmm. you know, like back pain or anything like that. Like many of them, Will con- I mean, what Many of them will continue to function. They just find sure. a different way to do it. And because the DASH is a self-report questionnaire, your perception of how you're doing, you know, versus like what you objectively see might be different.
1: So while there's not not a lot of change in, in that, there is certainly change in the objective measurements uh, mm-hmm. of lymphedema volume. Uh, uh, review for our audience briefly, like how, how do we accurately measure lymphedema volume?
2: So... For this study, um, we we measured uh, arm circumference. And so we mm-hmm. measured at uh, different points in the arm, both the affected arm and the unaffected arm. And then we derive a volume calculation using um, a formula that's for a truncated cone, basically, that's been published elsewhere. Um, we also use something called the bio- bioelectrical spectroscopy, so or BIS, um, and that is a device that, where you basically, what happens is you run a very, very low level of current through your body, and you're measuring the resistance um, to, of um, to f- with or without, you know, an extra amount of fluid in your limbs, basically. Mm. Um, and then uh-huh. with the the bis the device that does the bis, um, we use a device called an LDEX, um, which mm-hmm. is pretty widely used in um, lymphedema research. I would say. Um, and that gives you kind of a ratio of the affected to the unaffected side. Um, and so, and that, at least on the device, it gets um, the, the measurement produced. It produces a number that's a number on a bell curve.
1: Um, mm-hmm. So you can
2: see like how, how different it is compared to, quote unquote, the regular population.
1: Uh, and ultimately we're comparing uh, uh, 12 sessions an hour each um, over a month to a month and a half um, and uh, you found a, a clear winner uh, how, how dramatically uh, would you say negative pressure i mean uh, in terms of meaningful volume change that, that you're seeing um, versus uh, the uh, decongestive therapy uh, what, what is this how sizable is this difference?
2: I'll I'll point out that both groups actually showed a decrease in volume.
1: I see. Okay. Um,
2: just that the volume decrease in the negative pressure group was a little bit more significant, was bigger than the one in and and more statistically significant than the one in the in the manual lymphatic drainage group. Um, it just over time, um, just the just the amount of change between limbs in the negative pressure group was just far greater than the one in the MLD group.
1: So far greater to an extent that you were surprised uh, by. Um, Is it it something that's Hmm. clearly obvious to both clinician and patient uh, alike that this is, um, obviously this wasn't a crossover group, so it's Mm -hmm. not like uh, patients or clinicians could compare in the same person the treatment of one Versus the other. But, um, uh, you know, I, what I'm getting at is obviously there there's statistically significant results, which, which are important. Uh, and then there's like patently obvious results, like yeah. on, on what scale is this?
2: I think your scale was like patently obvious. Sort of like, <laughs> like, like obvious, obvious. <laughs> to someone who
1: has no experience with lipidemia. It's like, wow, that, that, that extremity is far less swollen than this other one, for example, which received standard treatment. You know, something like that.
2: I would say that there were pretty big changes. Uh Um, I think more importantly was uh, from a patient standpoint, like all of the patients that were in the negative pressure group, like really liked it, um, liked it in the sense that like, they felt it was, it was very helpful for them. They felt like their function was better. They felt that their arm felt lighter, you know, however you sort of like Mm -hmm. perceive that description. Um, And from a clinician standpoint, I will say that like, um, the the ability to sort of be the ability to objectively say like this is the amount of pressure and this is what i'm seeing is is good
1: mm-hmm. um
2: saves your hands a little bit um kind of in the vernacular because like you're you're kind of operating the suction device rather than sort of like using your
1: hands right okay so this is one particular device that you guys are exploring here the lympha touch and it is it part of a a, a larger uh, competitive industry or of devices or how would you describe how many options there are out there in terms of negative pressure?
2: Um, right now, I'm going to say like not a lot. I'm okay. not super familiar with all of the players kind of in the negative pressure device market. and mm-hmm. um, But I would imagine that like if there are sort of like wider applications to a negative pressure device, like the the kind of the notion, there are negative pressure devices available in the wound care for wound care ideologies and for wound care interventions and Mm -hmm. you know like then there's this question about like where's is is there an ability to sort of cross over those devices for instance okay so that's sort of but like within the lymphedema or within sort of the breast cancer related lymphedema market in particular there's not a lot of negative pressure players
1: Okay, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's this new thing, which I hope doesn't catch on, although there's no rules against it, <laughs> I guess it, it will. But in the device medical device industry, I've started to notice these subscription models um, yeah. where the company gets a cut of every time a device is used on a particular uh, patient. Uh, so literally built into the software of devices, you can only use it you know 100 times or something you got to recharge it, for example, or maybe even each use of it is linked to a particular patient mm-hmm. account. With the device company, personally, I think healthcare providers need to all push back against this. this is going to raise expenses. Uh, ag- agreed. Agreed. But agreed. but is this device that way? By the way.
2: Well, so when when we were running the study, the device was not like that. So okay. we had the study was funded by a grant through the American Physical Therapy Association. So we did not have those um, uh-huh. those limitations, so to speak. Um, and, you know, philosophically, I I agree with you 100%. Um, I think, like, for many medical devices like this sort of out in the market, your extra cost comes because every so often you have to replace the suction cups, for instance. And, for instance, sure. like for folks who use the bioelectrical impedance devices, you have to replace the electrode pads, like with every patient or, you know, the mm-hmm. same patient uses the same pad. So, you know like the company recoups its cost in some other way what yeah. i've heard and this is just sort of what i hear and um within kind of like that industry is like there there are there are maybe like initiatives to try to make a whole model for these devices. So like patients can kind of like rent them or like take them home, Mm -hmm. which is already a model that's being seen in some of the other devices that are being used to treat or manage, maybe manage is a better word, manage lymphedema, such as those um, intermittent compression pump devices that a patient can sort of lease or to take home and then use at home. So my feeling is that the negative pressure devices are probably heading in that like similar direction particularly if they can nail down maybe a protocol that says like okay for your arm you know this is kind of like what you do not to say like this this is sort of my other maybe soapbox within the medical device world this is whole notion of like one size fits all where really it's one size fits none
1: yes yeah it needs to be tailored and, and so forth yeah yeah that's just a particularly um frustrating trend, particularly when, uh, you know, in, in my world, I'm doing largely inpatient medicine and, you know, we're utilizing, you know, devices across various populations and so forth. Sometimes I feel like, I mean, it's not just the rehab industry, but, um, you know, whether uh, therapists and and doctors and everyone, healthcare, uh, oftentimes seems like we lack a particular um uh, wherewithal, in order to um, you know uh, stay on top of these issues as they uh, develop within industries like the device industry, um, you know, I'm just would struggle to imagine you know some dental chair company or something that's going to say, well, dentist, we're going to start charging you 50 bucks for every patient that sits in this chair, and, and the dentist just rolling over and saying, oh, sure, you know. Meanwhile, you know, everyone else in the healthcare, uh, you know, deals with the bubbling up of these of these technologies uh, with similar economic models and uh it's just uh you know r- rather uh, uh unfortunate. So anyway, uh something I'm always interested in when when we're talking about a new device is to what the model is.
2: I, I feel like this is like a convert like a much wider ranging conversation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um the whole kind of like medical devices and just just healthcare healthcare oh, sure. equity in yeah. general.
1: Yeah. Well, um, thank you for um, uh, this, uh, this interview. I encourage folks to go uh, look at the paper, this randomized trial, the first, um, looking at negative pressure treatment for lymphedema. Obviously, a, a huge patient population, even just confined to you know, breast cancer, but there are m- many other etiologies for this uh, sticky condition, and uh, anything we can find to help is certainly worth exploring. It's always important to do so Independently from, you know, economically uh, interested uh, companies and so forth, and, and good to see independent trials of, of sec- such technologies. So, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Lee.
2: Thank you very much, Dr. Vox.
1: Joining us now on the Rehab Cast, we have Justin Chi. Uh, Justin is a graduate student in the Department of Rehabilitation Sciences and Biomedical Engineering at the University of Toronto. Uh, He and uh, colleagues uh, there uh, have published a uh, review article, on, uh, specifically a meta-analytic review article, on the influence of multiple sclerosis on spatiotemporal gait parameters. Um, It's a systematic review and meta-regression. Uh, this obviously is a uh, disability uh, pattern that uh, uh, affects uh, many uh, hundreds of thousands of people around the, the globe and of great importance in uh, rehabilitation generally. So you picked a, a big topic uh, there, uh, uh, Justin. Uh, thank, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us about um, you know prior uh, reviews of, uh, of GATE uh, that have been done in MS and, and, and why in the world do, do we need a, a new meta-analysis on it?
0: Well, uh, we know from from past research, really, there's been a, a rise in in uh, in research on MS. So yeah, we, we saw the number of publications on gated MS uh, increasing steadily over time with an accelerated pace in the past 30 years, really. And uh, an incre- mm-hmm. incremental rise in reporting on this topic was first observed in the 1970s, followed by a growth and accelerated pace from the 1980s into the present day. And from an historic perspective, this recent expansion in research was foreshadowed by clinical advancements, such as MRI technology and disease-modifying drugs, the development of modern Mm gait analysis systems, such as 3D motion capture systems and instrumented walkways, and then the emergence of new applied technologies, such as wireless technology. And what we found from the other review studies on this topic and the research that was done is that we know that there are significant differences between individuals with MS and non-MS control groups those differences are well documented in this literature. For example, individuals with MS have a slower preferred gait speed and increased gait asymmetry. But clearly not all individuals with MS are clinically similar. Pathological mechanisms such as inflammation, demyelination, and axonal degeneration, they all have a variable effect on the central nervous system. And this variable effect disrupts cognitive sensory and motor functions that are fundamental to gait in many ways. So, characterizing individuals with MS as a single group neglects this heterogeneity. Uh, we we see this a lot in the in the previous literature on, uh, especially the the review literature, where the comparisons are focused on um, the individuals with MS to non-MS controls. But thankfully, newer research on MS and GATE has been focusing on clinically different subgroups. Prominent examples are disability severity and fall classification, which we focus on in our review study. So the increase in reporting on these subgroups is a promising, encouraging trend in MS research that I hope continues.
1: What would you say the the clinical gate analysis is being done uh, routinely in the uh, neurology MS clinics uh, at this point? What's your understanding of? Uh, of what clinicians are doing as they are, you know, dosing drugs and getting follow-up imaging and so forth?
0: Well, a lot of the literature right now is focused on, uh, and a lot of the work that's done in the clinics is really using the performance of, um, of uh, they look at gate performance um, by conducting uh, clinical gate tests. Mm -hmm. These are really important, useful tools. Um, They often use a stopwatch timer or, you know, they typically measure gait without instrumentation. But the issue with that is that, you know, the way that they're measuring gait may not be sensitive enough to detect subtle differences in gait performance. So, uh, you know, there there are newer technologies available now, uh, I mentioned a couple of, you know, 3D motion capture mm-hmm. sort of, set, set of walkways, and even more recently, inertial sensing systems. And in, as technology develops and, and improves, uh, these can make it possible to more easily assess gait um, in not just gait laboratories, but in, in clinical settings. So Hopefully, uh, there's more of a shift towards technology-based gate assessment tools in in clinics, mm-hmm. and then that could you know improve the ability of clinicians to to differentiate between uh, the subtle differences of their patients.
1: Yeah, there's always this lag between uh, you know the, the the scientific literature and what we're learning, and, and what meta analyses like these can can reinforce that we information that we could gather on individual patient populations, and then what's actually done. Uh, in the real world for reasons of, you know, uh, time management, additionally uh, <laughs> dealing with large patient populations, uh, 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 and certainly what different uh, insurers are willing to pay for uh, in terms mm-hmm. of analysis and so forth. It, it seems to me, my, my impression, I don't uh, treat a, an MS population myself in rehabilitation. But my impression is that when it comes to MS in particular, it's only a, a a small subpopulation of MS patients who get access to uh, kind of uh, uh, rehabilitation resources generally, or certainly anything approaching gait analysis. Right. In terms of what you're demonstrating, though, and this and this meta-analysis is that uh, there's quite a lot of information there to be to be had that that perhaps could be you know uh, maybe predictive of the uh, MS course. Certainly detailing the type of uh, disability, maybe even tracking along with, well, certainly different uh, treatments that, that could impact it um, and and certainly could be useful as, as part of, uh, you know, uh, uh, tracking clinical uh, interventions. Of course, MS, unlike uh, uh, many other uh, neurodegenerative conditions and neurological conditions that we see in rehabilitation, does have a, a plethora of, uh, of, of treatment options. Um, and so perhaps, therefore, could, the, you know, gait analysis could be kind of packaged in uh, into that.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think that you know the, the results of our work have so, uh, significant implications for a number of things, including clinical decision making, the effectiveness of clinical interventions, and even community uh, insight into community challenges. So like when regarding disability, we know that a large proportion of individuals with MS have ambulatory difficulties at all stages of their disease course. The gradual loss of independent gait function they experience can have dire consequences. For example, it Mm -hmm. can adversely affect employment rates, health resource utilization, social participation in the community, and quality of life. This is why walking is one of the most valued functions by this population. And regarding falls, we know that over half the individuals with MS experience falls in the prior two to six months, and 12 to 60% of those falls result in injury. Several factors that affect mobility are also associated with falls risk. These factors include fear of falling, assistive device use, balance deficits, and fatigue. So, with this study, we have new knowledge about how gait characteristics differ between more precise patient cohorts. Clinicians can use these results to make more nuanced comparisons between their patients, and they have a better understanding of what to expect as the disease progresses and adjust treatment accordingly. The reference values can also be used by scientists to evaluate how effective new tra- uh, interventions are. For example, mm-hmm. we know that a wide range of training programs can be used to elicit significant changes in spatiotemporal gait characteristics in individuals with MS. Pilates, uh, for instance, can increase gait speed by 0.2 meters per second robot assisted gait training can reduce double support time by 4.6%, and our findings suggest that the gait enhancements achieved by these interventions may be sufficient to affect disability or falls risk if their effects can be sustained. Our results also provide insight into the mobility challenges that individuals with MS experience in the community and how they compensate for those challenges. The differences we observed have serious implications for the ability of more severely affected individuals to adapt to environmental challenges, such as crossing time-signalized intersections, especially when tripping or slipping hazards are present. Some of the differences, like a reduction in gait speed, have even been associated with increased fatigue, decreased physical activity, lower balanced confidence, and decreased health-related quality of life. At the same time, though, the results also indicate that these individuals may be adopting a more cautious and stable gait pattern. Using the same example of gait speed, walking with a reduced gait speed can lower one's falls risk and fear of falling. And that's because the reduced momentum gives them more time to compensate for the unexpected perturbations. That's why in our study, we emphasize that not all gait differences between the subgroups are detrimental. We really need to observe the results from a broader perspective that takes into account compensatory strategies, not just changes that are associated with poor clinical outcomes.
1: You looked at certain interventions that were done, like uh, Pilates balance training and, and yoga therapy and so forth. I was curious, um, obviously, this is a rehabilitation journal, and these are all rehabilitation interventions, but are, are there uh, studies out there that you've come across where the pharmaceutical industry looking at different biologics being uh, developed for MS and so forth are using uh, gait analysis uh, in terms of their outcomes?
0: Absolutely. And that, that's very common in pharmacological studies. You do see um, in the MS population there, you know, when a new drug is developed, they, uh, they do um, test the, the effect on gait characteristics, particularly, um, you know, if that drug is, you know, related to mobility and to, you know, supposed to help mobility in some way, you know. Um, so that is a common, uh, com- gate um, research is common in pharmacological studies.
1: Yeah, well, I was wondering if in the pharmaceutical industry studies that are being done, if they're utilizing any um, uh, norms uh, in order to compare the the patient populations. Uh, if indeed uh, this is the development out of this meta analysis, we're finding like uh, you know what we might find to be an expected gate speed for someone at a particular EDSs or, or that type of thing, um, or if this is kind of uh, a new development that uh, both for the rehabilitation and uh, literature as well as pharmacologic literature to start to have some norms to be able to compare outcomes by whether they be rehabilitative or pharmacologic.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I think that obviously, you know, the, the this is studied a lot, but a lot of the studies, I think, to date um, just focus on the changes within those individuals rather than establishing norms. It's often very mm-hmm. hard to to record um, data on a lot of patients with MS, you know, the difficulties getting them into the lab, getting, um, you know, they can only tolerate um, so much time um, being assessed and, and things like that. That, and it's also difficult to to um, to conduct uh, gate analyses in many um, circumstances, particularly uh, clinical ones. Um, so, the, you know, the 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 pharmacologic research you know, to date um, it hasn't really established norms, um, to my knowledge. Um, that's really awesome. where you get, uh, you know, there's that's really the value of pooling some of these studies together in a subdesign design like a, a meta regression, so that you can increase the sample size and and, and take a look and really establish those norms, which is what we've tried to do um, not only for um, for our study, but for for all the studies.
1: Well, uh, I'm curious about some of some of your lines of, of research in, uh, in MS or, or GATE. Do you have other uh, areas that, that you're uh, exploring? Uh, I often find when folks are doing meta-analyses in a, in a particular topic that you're also might be a part of a research group that's planning a particular intervention uh, uh, as well, or indeed other lines of rehabilitative research that that you do.
0: That's correct. So the reference values we've generated in this study have really paved the way for two additional studies that I'm including in my doctoral dissertation. So one of the studies that I'm investigating is assistive devices for MS the use of assistive mobility devices um, is actually relatively unexplored in MSG research. And this is so surprising because certain devices like rollators or four wheeled walkers are so commonly used. And paradoxically, assistive device use has been identified as a fall risk factor in this population. And we don't know if individuals are falling because of intrinsic factors like their fatigue or problems with the devices, maybe they're causing them to trip or challenges in the environment, but more likely it's a combination of all those factors. So in the study I'm working on right now, I'm focusing on describing and comparing rollator-assisted gait across different levels of disability among individuals with MS. And the upper limbs are used heavily during rollator-assisted gait, and this has implications for trunk motion. So the work that uh, I'm seeking to to, to perform is to, uh, to really bring about a deeper understanding of the relationship between assisted device use, trunk motion, and spatiotemporal gait parameters so that we can more effectively address the high falls risk in this population. And then in the final study of my thesis, I'm going to be exploring the impact of fatigue on roll leader-assisted gait and trunk motion. In the long run though, I hope to explore how biofeedback can be used to enhance the gait performance of individuals with MS. Assisted devices seem to be a perfect platform to administer training interventions and with rapidly evolving changes in technology, there are some exciting opportunities ahead to create new and effective gait interventions Exploring these options can lead to advances that will prolong the independence of individuals with MS and improve their quality of life. And I, I find those prospects quite exciting.
1: Definitely. You know, I've uh rollators are something that I have certainly not perhaps kept uh quote unquote up to date on. And uh, when I think about it now uh talking with you, what an amazing platform uh walkers are supposed to integrating uh quite a lot quite a lot of uh uh, computer technology and potential for feedback, mm. you know, uh, via the, uh, uh, you know, tactile feedback and so forth, that, you know, it, right. you could be basically, you know, rolling along with more of a, of a biofeedback device that was kind of giving you almost, mm-hmm. almost just like your, your smart car is warning you that you're kind of veering out of the lane or giving you a little bit of a yes. bump or tactile feedback. you role later could be doing the same thing uh, does what I'm talking about already exist or in development or could you could you educate me there well
0: I think you know when I started this work uh, many years ago now um I think that technology was a point where a lot of these you know things were just like, you know, hopes for the future, they weren't quite, you know, able to be realized. And certainly for for an individual like me, I, I'm not a clinician, uh, I'm not an engineer by training. It's sort of daunting thinking about, you know, developing the technological side. Mm-hmm. But as you mentioned, a lot of these things, you know, with, with the smartphone, smart devices, um, and commercially available, like inertial sensors that are, you know, it, Incorporated into what we're wearing, and you know, there's there's so much potential with the new technology that I think that a lot of the the things you just talked about are are really um, we're on the 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 task of being able to actually uh, look at these things and look mm-hmm. at ambulation in everyday life and start to, to quantitatively measure. Um, you know, uh, some of those challenges that these people are, are experiencing. And on top of that, look at, you know, biofeedback and other training mechanisms that could in the moment intervene and prevent falls. And, you know, really after we've identified where they're falling in the community more in more detail and, you know, how their trunk motion is affected, how their upper body is affected um, then we can look at, you know, applying stimuli such as, you know, um, tactile feedback, or you know uh, a sound, an auditory tone, or even some sort of visual cue mm-hmm. that will help keep these individuals help them target that uh, in target to make their their date safer. So uh, there's so many tools available, even by putting say an, an iPad. On, on a rollator itself mm-hmm. you know there, there's an opportunity for you know auditory feedback there's vibri- vibratory feedback there's a uh, visual cues that could be displayed on on the ipad and that's a commercially available product that anybody can have access to if they download an, an app for instance that helps to do these things so i think there are a lot of exciting possibilities right now
1: fascinating all right well uh justin chief the university of toronto graduate student there uh Will be defending his PhD, I gather, uh, later this year. Uh, congratulations right. on uh, uh, this publication of an uh, uh, important meta-analysis on uh, spatiotemporal gait parameters and uh, MS. Uh, I'm sure uh, will be well referenced in, in this uh, large literature uh, going forward. And uh, uh, thank you for your time here today on the Rehab Cast. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And that'll do it for this 39th episode of the Rehab Cast. Please like on your podcast app and take a moment to send this show to a friend and colleague. Until next time.